0: Podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague Jasper murison Bowie. Hi, Barney. We are minus Mark Pringle this week. He is probably at this very moment jetting off to his Tuscan retreat. <laughs> lucky, <laughs> um, lucky man. The, the, the Pringle compound, and so you won't be hearing the inimitable uh, sort of Basil Brush style laughter of, of Mr. Pringle this week, but. He'll be back in a couple of weeks. Yeah. We wish him a very happy holiday. We are joined today by our guest, Ian Penman. Welcome. Hi, Barney. Delighted to have you here, Ian. It's a great honour. Ian is really... I mean, all these awful words that we like icons and legends and yada, <laughs> yada. We hate them, don't we? Yes, we hate them. But you are nonetheless a legend of music writing. You know, in the history of music journalism, you you have a very certain place. And you are just publishing this very week a collection of long essays that you've written for the London Review of Books and City Journal in America. It's called. It gets me home, this curving track. It is published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. And it is bloody brilliant.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: I just feel, let's establish that from the get-go. There is some really superb writing in this collection. Anthony Quinn just reviewed it in The Guardian, just gave it a, a rave review. I mean, it's, what can I say? It just sort of takes writing about popular music and really sort of digging deep into all those sort of possible ways of looking and hearing at artists to, to sort of a new a new level for me. I've read some of these pieces before, a few in the LRB. How wonderful that people can still write like this and are not allowed to given the space to write about music in this way. We might have thought it was like dead and buried a long time ago.
1: It's something I've wanted to do for ages, and I was just lucky that they sort of asked me at the right time. You know, it, what was the first piece that kind right, of yeah set uh, you what, down this road? The story of the first piece, which I with the mod piece. The original title of the book actually was going to be related to the mod piece. There's the Pete Townsend quote in the opening paragraph: "Is I look all white, but my dad was black." Yes, and that was the working title for the book. Um, <laughs> that would have been but, interesting. Yeah. yeah. But saner minds prevailed. You know, the marketing department, especially in America, would, you know, it was never really on as a. No, it was a, never going to fly, I think, was it? Know, there would have been, as the young people say, a Twitter storm. You know. <laughs> but uh, at the very least, I think. And there's also the additional problem it might have been filed under misery memoir or something right. rather than yeah. than music essays. Yeah. But, but that was, I think that's what links them in a sense. There's this black white thing that goes throughout it, you know. And it was only after really when I was looking through trying to choose which ones to use that it came to light that I realised that there was, there was this theme you know on top of which it's I suppose there's a kind of buried memoir there almost you know it's without actually being boorishly autobiographical or anything you know there is a story there of of how I came to this stuff you yes know. like when I was a teenager in flattest dullest Norfolk you know in, in the 70s before Plunk all these incredible soul records, you know, which which had a punk-like effect on me, you know, yeah. just like well, you you probably had the similar thing, you know. I was lucky enough to have a there was a Backstreet Soul shop in Kings Lynn, a sort of northern soul outpost, but they also had lots of southern imports and stuff, yeah. you know. So every week I would go down there and buy all this stuff, and week after week you would hear this stuff, and it was just you know, wah, yes. Swamp Dog or whatever, you know, and yes. it, it did have a pre-punk punk effect on me, you yes. know? It's like only 14 or 15 or something, you know. In fact, the first piece of music writing I ever had published was my dad was in the RAF, so we were on an RAF base, and they had this free sheet, which was mostly, you know, shopping offers at the local NAFI and local news, and I did a singles column <laughs> <laughs> for them, uh, if anyone has one, I'd really like to see it. <laughs> but, you know, they were expecting me to write about, I don't know, you know, um, the chart acts of the moment, or yeah. Barry or whatever. And instead, uh, it was like Millie Jackson, <laughs> Swamp Dog. It was a great year for soul singles, but I think I, I never...
0: So what year was that? You were, this was late 70s? I yeah, it must actually, have been or... 75-ish,
1: 75, I think. Well, 74, 75. Yeah. I didn't get asked to write a second one, but... <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, maybe, anyway, King, maybe
1: Kingsland wasn't ready yeah. for Swamp Dog or Millie Jacks. Johnny Taylor, I've Been Born Again. You know? Great. I mean, there was just it, one Well, that does other, stay, you know? so it probably would
0: have been 74, 75 yeah. in that case. Yeah, yeah. We will talk in due course about how you came to write on the NME. And I might even mention my first memories of <laughs> connecting <laughs> with me. you in those days. <laughs> yeah, days yeah, yeah. Wreck- well, but I think we really should talk about what's in this book. I mean, so... In a way, the mod piece that you mentioned is it slightly the odd one out isn 't it because the others are all kind of dedicated i 'm not going to call them profiles, but they are dedicated essays dedicated to specific artists,
1: yeah, although it does contain a lot of the themes in miniature, I think yeah. the interesting thing about music writing in a sense I mean both of us you know it's like it 's come and gone in our lifetime it 's very yeah. odd, you know when I was born. There wasn't any, mm. and now there's a, it's a kind of twilight. Now there isn't twilight. any. Well, in a way.
2: It's, it's been well, a... I mean, you say that, but there's more than ever. It's just that yeah. it's not that people are necessarily getting paid to do it all the time. It's in a different form, It's a I very guess. different form. Yeah, I think different. there is a lot of music writing out there, and there's a lot of good music writing out there. It's just that it's, the sources are so disparate that it's yeah. very difficult to have a sense of the overall
1: music press in the way that maybe you used to be able to well the the virtues of something like the enemy was how intense was it was you know so much packed into a small space and it was a conversation i think and that's a problem i've had in the with the previous book choosing pieces for that stuff that i had a good memory of stuff that was interesting in the context of that week you know you were having a conversation with the other writers with the readers you take it out of that context, it can suddenly fall a bit flat, you know. So the, on the one hand, that's the virtue, but it's also the, the drawback of some of the stuff. The lovely thing about the pieces in this book is you can you can take your time on them and you can... It, hopefully, they're the sort of pieces people might return to. And, you know, they are very carefully arranged, so there's all kinds of little references and echoes in them that may only reveal themselves on a second reading or
2: yes. something. Yes. I think it's certainly true that one could go from any of the essays and explore the the themes that are, that are being kind of brought together in such a clear way. They make great starting points for further research, if you will. And I think in that sense, it, it is the kind of thing that one would go back to because of that ability to just dive into all the different things that are discussed and alluded
1: to in a multitude of different ways well it, it starts with mod and with all these young guys having their lives you know turned upside down by soul music and stuff at a time when there, there really wasn't such a thing as youth culture or anything they were they literally started inventing it at that point yeah and the book ends with prince which is the kind of a slightly mournful ending is i mean i'm not i'm not going to use end of an era because that's obviously not true that like there's lots of great music about there's lots of Great writing about, you know. But there is a sense of a kind of arc there, you know, of, of a little history, mm. you know, somewhat.
0: In the intro, you talk about a very long and oddly dispiriting goodbye to Prince. Maybe we'll talk about Prince a little bit. I just want to mention I mean, one of the things I was thinking when you were just speaking was these are pantheon artists that are not going to kind of go away. You know, people will want to read about Charlie Parker and Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley in 100 years, I think. I hope, I pray. And they should definitely, one hopes they will come to this book because there's so much pleasure in reading you on these artists. You just think about them in ways you haven't before. It's like just having a light shone on, on aspects of somebody's career that you hadn't considered before. And you reveal so much about their lives, their personalities and and, and their music. You write so beautifully about Sinatra, Charlie Parker, Donald Fagin, the, the wonderful Fagin piece, which is essentially apropos his own collection, Eminent Hipsters, we were lucky enough to feature in our Steely Down anthology. I mean, apart from anything else, our tastes are broadly simpatico. <laughs> I've always loved the things that you've loved and I read you on artists that I loved and learned so much about, When I was writing on the NME, I mean, your piece is about sort of Ricky Lee Jones and things like that. We've we've talked about Ricky Lee Jones, we've talked about Tom Waits. It's nice to feel that kind of aesthetic camaraderie. What was the next piece that you wrote after the mod? You said that was kind of the way into this new, this new. sort of, what, like third wind of your your career. What was the next big
1: piece that you wrote? I think, strictly speaking, I think the the mod... And the James Brown, which I did for City Journal, were the, the first pieces. The order they're printed in the in the book, it starts with the Mod, I think. Yes, it in, does. There's certain lines going through it. Like I said, there's Mod, and then there's Presley, whose life was influenced so much by black music. you Yes. Know? And then Steely Dan as well, obviously, uh, by jazz music and so on. So there's these themes or echoes running through it, hopefully. But after, I think the next piece would have been Charlie Parker. Mm. And I think, I mean, not that you really think about these things so much when you're actually writing them, but as I say in the intro, I wanted to be able to write deeply seriously about some of these things without it being off-putting, you mm. know, without it being academic or heavy or ponderous or... Or pompous, as yeah, you say in yeah. the intro. yeah. And likewise, I wanted to tell the story of my love for this stuff and how yeah. it's deepened, you know, it's like... It hasn't gone away, and it's actually deepened in in these cases. And I've been listening to it for years. So you want to put that on the page, but again, you don't want to be too me, me, me. You know, I don't think my life is that interesting to most people. You know, the ideal reader, as well as people like yourself, would be someone who just happened along to it could still read it. You know, and might want to listen to Charlie Parker for the first time or Bill Evans or. Whoever, because personally, I mean, a lot of writing about something like jazz can be off putting, yeah, if if you don't know the history and the techniques, you know, and all that that kind of lingo. really like it if people you know got that from it and pursued it more you know Jasper, what
0: did you make of the Charlie yeah I I mean that's
2: the Charlie Parker piece is the one that I've read I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of it because I really really enjoyed the way that you weave a tapestry of the different influencing factors on his life but drawing on things other people have written about it in such a way that it makes it possible to get an overview in some way of what he might have been like, but not because one of the themes is that it's so difficult to know what he was actually like. One thing I wanted to talk about was that even though I think you succeed in making it not academic, there's a sort of academic rigor about the way that you go about it, which I think because it's done well, is what enables anyone to just come to it and look at it Mm. and see it. And in addition to that, some of the writing is the style of it is just gorgeous i mean there's a passage that i've picked out from the charlie parker piece unearthly sonic signatures woven from everyday air flurries of notes like rambo's million golden birds set free no one else could do this one thing he did exactly the way he did it mm. it's yeah. lovely prose yeah it's so difficult to write about music in a way that makes you want to listen to it and makes you maybe have an image in your mind but i think you do that, and it makes you want to go and listen to Charlie
1: Parker. Good. When I finished Good. reading the piece, I went and listened to yeah. Charlie Parker. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a great. There's also a brief mention in the mod piece about Bill Evans, and in a basic sense, I think I almost feel not to be too sentimental, Well, be, sentimental. be I don't, sentimental. I don't have a problem. As no. Anyone knows, who knows me, I don't have a problem <laughs> with sentimentality. But I feel a debt to some of these people, you know, yeah. and they've given so much. It's a kind of economy of giving something back, you know. The Charlie Parker piece, I do go into what what makes him wonderful for people like him. But there is a section where I kind of, a devil's advocate type section where I say, well, you know, there are, it, what that might be, what the problems might be of of getting to know him, you know, and stuff, or getting to know jazz. And... Would you say, isn't this obsession with technique alone a
0: bit lopsided, (laughs) a bit inhuman? What about emotional sway? I love Parker's music. It's not what I would choose to smooth anyone into jazz appreciation. And also, he rarely admits softer moods or qualities, anything of drift, reflection, loss. I think that's slightly the problem I've had with Bird, actually. And,
1: in fact, that
2: was a section that I enjoyed a lot because I wouldn't say he's my favourite saxophone. I mean, I play the tenor sax, so obviously... Bird was never going to be my favourite saxophonist ever. But even so, Charlie Parker's not my favourite saxophonist, saxophonist, jazz musician, full stop. Partly because of that technique issue where it's so much about the brilliance and the flurries of notes. And for me, music, jazz music, other music, is not about how many notes you can play and how quickly. It's the notes that you play the spaces you leave, all of that stuff. And that's one of the things I find important in other jazz, like Miles Davis and yeah. whatever. But it's nice to read a piece about Charlie Parker that actually raises critically this issue of, well, is this technique taken to... Is this sort of wankery kind of just <laughs> taken to its Technical extreme? Term. You know? <laughs> I've had the yeah. same
1: problem with Coltrane, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. admit yeah. it to Ernie, but for years... It's very you know, difficult to admit. I like his you know or you know i like the earlier stuff the earlier funnier stuff no the earlier more melodious <laughs> stuff you know stuff. um i loved it but when he starts to go you know what philip larkin called the indian snake charmer stuff you know i'm not sure i'm not mm. sure and for years you know and I, that's one of the things about the book is it's the result of years and years it's partly a, a result of my age you know that i've been listening to and certainly reading I mean, I've got a whole wall of books, you know, and it's, I'm just lucky that it it paid off, you know, <laughs> eventually. But the problem with Parker and some figures like that is you, you get some people writing about him just from the angle of the messy private life, and then you get some jazz people saying, well, that's got nothing to do with it. You know, it's you just fun, write about the playing. chords, you no, know. No, no, so yeah. Well, neither position is true, I don't think. I think uh, you have to, they have to be woven together. And an example in the Parker piece of, Disguised autobiography is the section where it says about he went too far, too fast in one direction, boxed himself in, you know, he he developed Mm. certain muscles at the cost of others, which is an echo of how I felt at times with my freelance writing. You know, I got very good at being a freelance writer, get up in the morning with a blank page and within hours you could have something that was pretty spiffy, you know, (laughs) full of vim and spine. (laughs) (laughs) But... You learn, you develop certain muscles, you know, and you could you could quote that bit you just quoted uh, verbatim, you know. Mm. That there's nothing in it of drift, reflection, softer moods, and after years and years, I was lucky enough to have, you know, th- these essays represent that chance of being able mm. to have the drift and the reflection and the softer moods, you know. And I was just lucky to have two uh, publications that would allow me to spend months. Even years, even years in the case of the Prince piece, yes, you know, and I it is lucky, you know, I've got a partner who supports that, you know, I I can spend the time doing that, and the (laughs) publication.
0: I love, Ian, about these essays is that you unapologetically... It's everything in the kitchen sink, isn't it? You bring everything into it. There's no, like, well, I'm not going to write about the personality of this, what James Brown did, what kind of a sort of shut-down tyrant (laughs) he was. You know, and I think that's more honest. I, I think we, as consumers, as fans, we do experience the whole caboodle in a way don't we when when we're a fan of somebody it, it is it's it's everything i love the way you write about sinatra because it doesn't feel like when you write about you know the obvious things that we know about sinatra you know the mob the you know his in, involvement in democratic politics all of that stuff it, it to me it is all pertinent it's all relevant it's all part of the same thing that we call
1: sinatra it's mostly a product of my own reading, you know, yeah. that was, I mean, over the years, it goes back, some of it goes back, you know, a decade. to, I mean, even the stuff that I was known for at the NME, like half-jokerly, like the Roland Barthes stuff and so on, that is still somewhere in there, you know, in a different form, but um, like with Sinatra, you want to write about the texture of it, the spaces, you know, in a way again, I said, without being off-putting, without being too musicological. You want to find, you know, pinpoint what it is you love about this. I suppose, over the years, the the thing, the obsession, I suppose, the magnificent obsession (laughs) is um, (laughs) the voice, is singers. That's, I mean, pretty much what I've been going back to over the years. And... The jazz thing is, you know, I've been listening to it for years, well, you know, since my teenage years, but I'd never really written about it before, partly through what we were saying before. I was put off by it by not being enough of a jazz buff yeah. a jazz bow. You know, I I didn't know enough about the kind of music To feel like you deserved yeah. to write about yeah. it. Right. so it was partly... At long last, love. At long last, I have a chance to write about these figures to take my time over it.
0: Talking about Roland Bar, we we have to <laughs> we have to sort of go back because I mean I think that one of the you know the trajectory of your career before you started writing these essays there was still very much I mean this. You know, it may sound very inside baseball for listeners, but it's fascinating to me, so we're bloody well going to talk about (laughs) it. But there was this whole kind of cliche, wasn't there, that the enemy was somehow brought down by... Ian Peman and Paul Morley, you know, because their writing became so abstruse and complicated and referential that nobody could understand it anymore. People who've grown up going to sort of pub rock <laughs> gigs and reading reviews of, you know, Eddie and the Hot Rods just didn't really know or want to know who Roland Bart was. Now, fast forward the tape, and as you say, Bart is still somehow kind of embedded in, in your writing. But now it is, you write with so much more kind of heart and just emotional, I think, openness. There's so much feeling, so much love in, in these essays. It doesn't feel, you know, Jasper talked about academic rigor. There's an academic kind of layer to it, but it is not off-putting. It's very welcoming. It's very inviting. Would you say that when you look back, and I also have to just mention just how intimidating I found you... <laughs> When I first, you know, when I first tiptoed into NME in probably late nineteen eighty, because why my memory and there's a picture that Danny Baker tweeted of you and Monty Smith in that corner. <laughs> And you felt like you were sort of running this kind of just this sort of gamut of this terrifying gamut. When you walked in, you guys would be in the corner and you, the wit was withering. And I was just sort of terrified of saying anything that you and the Monty would, would. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, Dorothy I, Parker here. Yes, very I, much. That's how it felt. It was like, oh, God, I must. I better not I say think anything at all. were bringing
1: a lot of their preconceptions. Of course. It, I think and of it, it fed on itself. And the whole myth, I think, is ludicrous um, for for all kinds of reasons. I will admit, you know, I was young. I was... Full of vim and spunk. Yes. (laughs) Especially the spunk. (laughs) Vim was going up my nose. No. I was young. And, you you know, you're young, you're having fun. You can be a bit glib, you know, and you are kind of, we're kings of the world. It can be a bit like that. But there was an an enormous sense of pleasure and fun and play about it. I mean, that was what the point of the quotes were from. They were used in a kind of, you know, like throwing lots of sweeties up in the air and seeing which came down, you know. and I'm not an academic. I didn't go to college for one single day. Mm. You know, it's entirely autodidactic. Mm. I mean, I can't speak for Paul, although, we, you know, we did spend a lot of time together. Yeah. especially after hours. But that was one of the paradoxes of this, this ludicrous idea that we brought down, the <laughs> Empire, is that one complaint was that we were these um, forbidding, doomed joy division, uh, you know, with dark clouds over our which heads. You long clouds. Clouds, which you And, I and of course, said, Nor was you know, Paul. And abstruse writing that no pseudo-semi-academic, you know, yeah. And then the other cliché was that we were somehow out of touch with the, the Roots Man, this, you know, yeah. apolitical, glib, running around drinking expensive cocktails and making silly remarks. Well, those two things don't go together, you know, and they also don't take into account the fact that I was a fairly lazy young man. <laughs> if you look back to the enemy, you know, there's not that <laughs> a huge amount of my stuff. And what there is, a lot of it's about TV, A lot of it's about film. You know, I was on the editorial staff, so I did... You know, it's like... um, I'm not sure who would find a piece on the Rockford Files forbidding and abstruse, (laughs) you know. And and, uh, Robert De Niro and Coronation Street and stuff. No-one said at the time that it was, you know... There may have been a brief period in 1979, you know, a brief six-month period where I was personally unhappy and (laughs) stuck it to a number of rock bands. But, you know, it was... It was fun, yeah. you know. I, I don't. I think it's very much this myth has grown up as a convenient excuse for some people. It's turned, you know, it's it's post history. It was never mentioned at the time. You well, know. and also yeah, maybe always... the reason. Maybe the reason wasn't our, uh, you know, fireworks box. Maybe it was a lot of dull articles about indie bands that people put people off. I don't. Or kind of. Rather dull, long political pieces. You know, you could pick anyone could write a history and say, "Oh, it was that strain of the enemy which put people off." Or it was that, you know.
0: I don't know. I- well, and also in, I mean, so there's two other factors: the just ingrained, like British suspicion of people who are a little too clever for their own <laughs> good, shall we say, yeah, it's yeah. sort of anti-intellectual bent, and also that we were, you know, tipping into the eighties, which was a decade of. You know, bright shiny surfaces and fun. Well, cocktails to refer <laughs> to. He exactly. said, "I mean, we weren't supposed to be taking the stuff too seriously anymore, were we? We were supposed to be dressing up and
1: dancing." Well, there is. I, you wrote about soul music. I did a bit. Danny did a bit. But yeah. you know, there was also that aspect of to it as well—a slight suspicion of of those values. I think of the kind of nightclubbing values as opposed to the grim, authentic pub. Where, uh, you know, the serious young men, the last gang in town kind of yes, ethos, yes. which I, I never knew anything about. And I'll freely confess, you know, that my knowledge of, of rock and everything was pretty sketchy at that point. You know, I'd grown up mainly with soul and reggae and stuff. And I only learned about a lot of that stuff later. So it was a bit of a mystery to me, some of it, you know, and uh, I didn't understand how anyone could worship Lou Reed <laughs> you seemed like a thoroughly unpleasant gazer to me. Isn't he? <laughs> well, he was that. I and think well, he was probably more and... than that. yes,
0: yeah. you didn't. You you are one of those who've yeah, I suffered him, yeah. the Lou Reed interview. How was your experience?
1: Well, I, um, I think I threw him a bit. Actually, he would, I sat down and he did what he always does. He started, you know, monotone, just talking about amplifiers and guitars. I had you know, the same and experience. Yeah. But then I mentioned something that I'd just read, which was by oh, was a black writer who wrote about pimps and... Uh, Iceberg Slim or somebody like that oh, It was the other guy. Right. But anyway, it, and I I I was talking about this album that they'd made and his face kind of went like I'd one to him. He didn't yeah. know about this album, you know, this New York album uh, by this, you know. And after that point, yeah. he was... He yeah. was fine with me, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. like uh, I'd sidestepped him. I'm like, oh, this limey is a bit cool, you know. <laughs> sure,
0: sure. I think I had the same experience. in when I mentioned I was reading Gore Vidal's huh? memoir, Palimpsest, he happened to be reading it at that very moment too and therefore suddenly it was sort of okay you're worthy of interviewing me yeah so dreadful haircut he had that so. oh he had like a so, did you get him in his mullet yes yes you sorry, got yeah. the mulleted lou <laughs> uh, I, I, I the mullet <laughs> been had been really short at that point yeah it was it was it was horrific in i
1: interviewed him and uh willie nelson fairly close together not together yeah <laughs> no, <not laughs> together. that would have been interesting yeah
0: uncle lou and uncle willie um <laughs> But so so, uh, there was a sort of reaction, wasn't there? To well, name dropping the likes of Barth and Derrida in the pages of the NME. I and mean, yeah. you did um, then you sort of migrated to some degree to the wire, where references to Derrida were slightly more acceptable.
1: Yeah, I, don't, it's, I think if you look back on the pieces, there's far less of it than you know. Again, it turned into a. It was done with fun and, and tongue in cheek, yeah. and but. To, to come back to you know more, more recent writing, the problem with a lot of people who do use that uh, Bart and Derrida to, to talk about music is often that they'll quote those people as so and so says, or you yeah. know as as Lacan says, and they kind of file it under. Uh, I'd hope my hope is that I don't do that. I hope that it, it's more a sense of like it permeates, I and mean, it's like jazz people would say you play with someone and their influence you sure. know, rubs off on you. I would hope. That that's what's happened here is that that stuff is still there, but I don't do it in a kind of as so and so says to explain something somehow because I don't think you can do that. I don't mm. think that's I don't think you can say a plus a equals you know
2: no. Yeah, I think that's very legitimate. I think it's certainly true that it does permeate. I mean, there's a piece that I added this week from the Wire, which is a review of I don't know if you remember Paul, German oh, electronic yeah, music yeah, producer. Yeah. You reviewed his yeah. album, and it does sort of permeate that there's a bit. Paul may have reached his polar limit. Betka should now maybe unclench his stylistic hold, wander out of his trance music bunker and let him start to be jarred by some other sound, joust with something a little more impratory and loose. Other with a capital yeah, O, that, yeah. as in presumably Lacan's yeah. Notre. But I think that, it permeates. I think, although it's maybe less intimidating because you can read that and not be like, oh, as Lacan says, and I think that's good, I think... I think there's a way in which that can be intimidating if you don't know you look you're reading this, you're like, why is this O capitalized? Is it a typo? Like is it a printing error? Like so I think there's a way in which that can be intimidating as well, but yeah.
1: it does allow for some really interesting interesting writing. Well each basically. magazine has a different conversation going Absolutely. on with its readers, and like Absolutely. you say, it would more in the wire it would be more I think there's a lot more to be written as well about um that that's another area like jazz, is computer music and stuff. Also I did a review of couple of years ago about that which i raised the question the writing about it is so bad it's mm. like art criticism it's opaque these two wonderful albums from uh, french albums from the 50s or 60s were reissued on vinyl by mago editions mago wonderful amazing and they had these sleeve notes which were just so bad they were like the worst art criticism there's so much historically sonically to be said about that stuff especially the french stuff when it happened post-war the people who did it were involved with french radio some of them were involved with uh, the resistance the gradual development of computer encryption stuff it all goes together and there's so much there to write about and Instead, you end up with this really dry kind of tick-the-box writing, which jazz, computer music, and to an extent, reggae, you know, they're they're in a competition to see who the fans can write the worst. It
2: is is interesting that you bring up liner notes, though, because I think some of my favourite writing about jazz is actually... Mm -hmm. Online on notes, so there's a lot of great writing, particularly well, on like the Ellington records. 50s and, and 60s. There's just Same some with brilliant, Sinatra. brilliant writing on the backs of those records. Yeah. That mm. It's a
1: real treat to go and actually pick up an old record and just get to read that. stuff on Reprise, uh, Dean Martin and Sinatra. and Of course, Sinatra released albums by some of his jazz heroes on uh, on Reprise. One of the first albums he released was a Ben Webster album, I think. Right. And some of the sleeve notes, yeah, like you said, they're really... Uh, well,
0: they're full of spunk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to short in the Prince piece where you start one sentence, readers of Lacan may object that <laughs> the subject seems a bit old to be having any kind of mirror stage oh, moment. Fr- and, and I loved it oh. because it's like, well, I wondered just what, Sort of the Venn diagram <laughs> with how many how many readers of Lacan are, are, are also huge fans of Prince. But but the fact is it's a piece for the London
2: Review of Books, and it's fine to talk about Lacan. Well, if you
0: don't know who Lacan is, find out, you know.
2: And also, again, to be fair, like you know, I quoted a bit from that poll piece, not that anybody's heard of Pol, I mean not that there's any reason to have done, but in that there's precisely the other side of it, which is the emotion, the heart. You say from track to track, there's not much textual difference. There's a definite limit to these small, self generated variations on a pattern. The dominant mood is so etiolated slash claustrophobic that you start to wonder if this isn't the sonic equivalent of trying to have a conversation with someone whose low monotone mumble never perks. To be honest, at <laughs> one point I had to break off and play a Prince track just to check I was still alive, which is <laughs> brilliantly funny, but also does kind of nice add link, that. Glenn. Yeah, very good link. <laughs>
0: Smooth Did link. you plan that, Jasper? <laughs> We have to talk a bit about Prince, don't we? Oh, Because yeah, talk um, way, right? uh, I mean, and again, I I'm really with you every step of the way in the sense that I think Love, Sexy was the last sort of really great work, and you know, maybe Alphabet Street was sort of the last just Such awesome odd piece odd of album, music. Yeah, it,
1: if it gets older as the years. Well, it is right? very odd. You know, if you listen to it on Spotify,
0: you have to listen to the entire album, it's just one track. It's very peculiar. Well, but that's, he wanted, that's how, how it was. How it was, it was, yeah, it was yeah, not on, on the, the album, CD obviously. Yeah. But he
1: insisted that he insisted the CD come that. out like that. Yeah. Right. I initially bought it on cassette, I remember, and then I had it on vinyl. I've never actually had it on CD, so I never had that experience. But it is... Awesome.
0: But you write superbly about Prince, and the... Bizarre end to his life, the pitiful and really unexpected end to his life, and just how alone he was. I mean, parallel there with James Brown. These two, these and two Presley, men, yeah. these two insane control freaks. Maybe Presley was less oh, of a control did, freak, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but certainly think. James Brown and Prince. You know, well, they were kind of autocrats in their own way, and they both they both died alone in in pretty really sad circumstances. Prince's story is. Is extraordinary. He was really the most eccentric superstar of the eighties. I think. Well, there's
1: another example like Charlie Parker as well. I think is. is, um, I was rather uh, again his fans. There's lots of books about Prince, but uh, it, it can be a slightly depressing feeling reading them all together. They somehow managed to celebrate him but miss what's good about him. To go back to the thing about the technical aspects, I think I've got it as a footnote in there where I compared I was listening to Dirty Mind and thinking, wow, this was really ahead of its time. Yeah. Just the, the way he uses synths and it's doesn't so overuse well them. Yeah. And and just the feeling of it. And it's so simple, crisp, you know, there's yeah. so much space in it and it's so punchy. And one of the tracks reminded me of Van Halen. This is all in the footnote, and I thought I just yeah. you know, jump. A at jump is a, yeah. is a little bit. Pricey, and I, I looked it? on uh, Wikipedia at the relevant entries, and Van Halen get a whole kind of a section about how way ahead they were, and it goes into detail about the Oberheim synth yes. and what yeah. bits of the Oberheim. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. wow! And then you go to the Prince one, and it's just said it's got let, literally a sentence, sure. a kind of and a slightly condescending. You right. know, he used some synths. On yeah, the it's just kind like. and there is an aspect and the same with James Brown you know I'd never actually read it could be I just missed it but I hadn't read anything about just how those early James Brown pieces were put together in the studio you know and it's fascinating you know and how the bass was put in blah 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 and I think especially in terms of black artists they sometimes get celebrated for that freakiness and eccentricity dark private life and stuff and the sheer scale of the technical innovation sometimes can be just lost you know completely i think you're and when you say not. celebrated for that freakiness also
2: demonized for oh, it. Yeah, i think yeah. that i think that then colors the perception of that technical side as well because it people don't want there to be that overlap you know people want to say well these are the these are the great technical innovators and they're very serious people and blah 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 but
1: that that's a separate thing but and it's again, not true at all with prince the technical and the personal go together again i think because Like you say, the last great album, you know, after that, he seemed to lose interest in playing around. There was a great period towards, you know, where he was playing around with the sound of his voice, you know, altering it. And and, Mm. on, um, on that final album, you've got all these layers of sound, you know. And after that point, he just seemed to lose interest in experiment. He went back to a very basic funk, trying to be a rapper, not very successfully, and very, very retro funk, and the same thing happened in his private life at the same time. Something happened around that point. And I'm not sure that it was drugs that, that early. But there's a quote there from one of his Brodies saying, you know, he got everything he ever wanted after Purple Rain and then found he didn't want it or something. Yeah, I think yeah. There was, you know, something went wrong at the end of the 80s. And I'm not sure. That's why I said it was a long and slightly dispiriting piece. You know, not that I didn't enjoy writing it, but... After a few years of it, you know, I didn't feel any closer to finding out what that was. That kind of that he lost, or why he went mm. in that direction. I mean, I so, got very
0: know. depressed by so many of those Prince albums that came out. Just, they just—they were just sort of funk by numbers, weren't they? In so many ways. And when that piano and a microphone record came out last year, I think it was last year. Was it? I mean, Such it just—it it just reminded me. Yeah. of how extraordinary he was, and how moving he was. Yeah, that long, that seventeen days. It's just devastating. And the version of "Mary, Don't You Weep," the the, the second thing that they've released, originals that just came out. I I found I'm afraid again slightly dispiriting. It just it just didn't it just wasn't it sure interesting. Was the
2: same, really, him at the but... piano.
0: I mean, I saw him on tour in eighty. Well, we were both at the Lyceum. Yeah,
1: sure. <laughs> I was going to
0: ask. him and, that, and, yeah. and then I. Did two or three dates on the road with Prince in America and the highlight was always when he would just sit on this kind of podium with this baby grand piano and play How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore? Yeah, yeah. And he just died and went to heaven.
3: Oh, be by my side? Mama, now you're gone.
1: That's that, his that voice, Hannah you know. Voice. Why? So why would you want hard. to do bad rapping when you've got a voice like that, man? <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like that, like that can weep and scream and cry and. Back. That's why I was saying at the, at the end of maybe. the Prince piece, I was kind of dreaming, imagining that he'd do one of those albums like Joni did, where she revisits yeah. early material, yeah. and you can feel the, the intervening years and in her voice, you know, and. I wanted him to do that. I wanted him to go back to the early stuff but do it as a proper grown-up man. Yes. And not pretend that he's this pretend party all the time party animal that you know well, for God's sake man, you know he's a middle man now. And he didn't even do it. No. You know, he, he was a workaholic, you know. Yeah. One well, kept
0: well. longing for just a, a, a really stripped down kind of put because I mean really he's at his best when he's most stripped down to me, the peaks. Are uh, kind of like Dirty Mind, yeah. You know, Kiss, which is like just nothing yeah. really. Uh, and uh, when doves cry, the more minimal side of Prince, it, it, I think, is the more when he, when he's got like a huge band and uh, a real and doing band, the, yeah. You <laughs> but know, It's
1: never what we wanted from him. Yeah. No, but he then, wanted, but then he didn't probably and...
0: care what we yeah, wanted, no. did he? And that's the thing. I mean, but
1: that was the problem I had with, funnily enough. Uh, with the lyceum show is that it was too rock bandy it was too real and sweaty and you know there was lots that's my memory of it anyway it's screaming guitar solos i got the feeling he thought oh england They're maybe like, they love led zeppelin they love hard rock and he went m- more for that angle
0: well, it may be. I had seen him at the Ritz in New York not long before that, and it wasn't a completely different show, but it was absolutely brilliant. I was It was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. Somehow the Lyceum, maybe just because I'd seen yeah. the previous thing, it didn't mean as much. But you write really well about the revolution, I think, and just everything that was so naff about Prince and the Revolution was was also what made them yeah. so unique and, and and different. You know, he just didn't want to... He did want to just be like an R&B star. And that was... It's something we talked about just the other day was that he took... I can't remember if it was an audio interview or just a piece where Prince said to Warner Brothers... He actually, very, he very took, early on. Yeah, literally when he was first being signed, he took... I think he took Lenny Warren cut aside and said, don't make me just another R&B act on yeah. Warner Rapute. Yeah, You know, because I'm... I'm a lot more than that. I want to do a lot more things. And he was like 19 at that point. Um,
1: but sadly, he did it to himself eventually. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. We're probably going to move on. I will just mention the three sort of archival pieces of yours that um, that uh, we've chosen to feature you on the homepage this coming week. And one is is John Fahey. There's a wonderful piece about John Fahey in your book. And this is one of the first interviews you ever did for the enemy? you were telling me. And it's a great piece, 1979, John Fahey, the great kind of uh, folk primitivist, fascinating figure.
1: I mean, it's one of the reasons uh, to pick it is because it it echoes with the the more recent piece in the book. Like you say, it was one of the first interviews I did as a, quote, (laughs) professional (laughs) journalist. And when I look back on it now, the first few interviews I did, you know, as a nervous... 90 year nineteen-year-old, and I just moved down to London. In fact, I moved down on my birthday, and that night went to see Annette Peacock at the Lyceum. <laughs> Welcome to London. So I'm, it's my yeah. birthday, and I'm I'm standing talking to Brian Case and Annette Peacock, two heroes who I've worshipped yeah, from afar. Yeah. You know, I don't know how I didn't lose it completely because uh, John Faye. The first few people I interviewed: John Faye, Annette Peacock, Wayne Shorter. And Joe Zawanol and oh, Jaco Pistorius from Weather Report oh, at sort man. of ten in the morning, and Brian Case was there as well. Again, I mean, yeah. Know. And I look back on this, I mean, and it seems extraordinary now that this lineup of figures. Yeah, it wasn't know, Eddie in like... the hot rules, was it? <laughs> How did I miss out on the good stuff? <laughs> how, yeah. how did I never? manage to interview it was just going to be. It was clash? just going to be uh, <laughs> your whole career was just going to be just like this. Took it for granted. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, which you, I guess, it may have been a psychic defense, you know, because mm. if you didn't, you might have been completely overawed. You mm. know, I remember going to see Annette Peacock, and she lived up way out in the country. And it was like a, a bad Hollywood comedy from the <laughs> '60s. She opened the door in a towel. She just stepped out. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how, you, how I didn't faint, sort of thing, on on a number of levels. But uh, but John Faye, as I I think I say in the piece, if I'd known, you know, I I would have bowed and said Maestro. Yeah. You know, it's like. But somehow, and in 1979, he was he was lovely. He was a lovely man, you know, and uh, very garrulous, very very well read. Talked about all kinds. You just ask him mm. a question, he'd just r- mm. rattle off on all kinds of tangents. And uh, yeah, lovely, lovely man.
0: The second piece is this remarkable piece you wrote about Nina Simone when she died, that you wrote for The Wire, yeah. uh, which is just just tremendous. Um, you really grapple with. What made her difficult, quote unquote (laughs) difficult? You really interrogate that notion of Nina as difficult and you.
2: And
1: the context that gives rise to it
2: as
0: well. Absolutely. Again, what I was saying
1: about um, James Brown and Prince, you know, she, she gets turned into this cliche they you say know, diva Well yeah. what does that mean what does it it's kind of as if you've explained her somehow she was a you know a difficult drunken diva well that doesn't explain anything no. i i came very close to putting that piece in the book actually because um partly because i it would be nice to have a, a female figure yeah. in there for one thing yeah but um and i really wish i could have had some billy in there as well but um yeah as i say it's it's again I'd listened to her for years, and hadn't read anything just about her voice and about how the politics and the difficulties—how uh, are they present in the voice? You know, what yeah. is it about her voice that is so powerful? And you know, it's it's just on the verge of kind of losing it, just on the verge of 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 weakness almost, or or a fall or something. But it's at the same time so powerful, you know. Mm. But uh... I mean, she was impossible.
0: Mark and I went to see. Well, probably one of the last shows she did here. Um, it was at this awful blues festival called Bishop's Stock in the West Country, and Nina was one of the headliners. And, I mean, she just pulled the classic Simone. She sort of played about three songs, and then she got in a grump, and she just left the stage <laughs> for about half an hour. <laughs> I mean, it was so bizarre. And yet, uh, you know, you'd still have paid money to see I think it.
1: there are a lot of reasons. I mean, I th- most... Journalists I know have a Nina story. and yeah. yeah, everyone can, you know, write them out. I mean, I think a lot of it probably had to do with being ripped off as well. I think she probably felt that... I mean, what I was saying about being a freelance writer earlier as well, you you work your whole life and then you get to the age she was... Mm-hmm. And you know you, she probably she was probably in a position a bit like George Clinton as well I was shocked to discover you know has no money basically yeah. and has to be on the road and you get to a certain age you know mm. you shouldn 't be in that position no, you know, there's you all sorts of reasons and I can imagine being Nina and being on a stage you know and in a sense waking up you know he's looking around what the. What am i doing here yeah, you know yeah. i'm a i'm a 70 year old woman yeah. you know i've worked all my life i'm adored and i've done amazing things i was you know i was part of the american century and here i am yeah fucking, you, yeah and my do, baby know. just
0: cares for me is in an ad and making yeah, somebody making lots of money lots it's not coming of, to me yeah none yeah. of it is go- going no. to
1: her you know um, so i can imagine her being a bit grumpy maybe <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. say the least you know, yeah but. she she was a very she was
0: a damaged and angry person yeah. but a giant
1: that voice is just yeah. uh, and it was again it was someone that i'd loved for years and hadn't written about so mm. and that was an example of what i was talking about earlier of getting up in the morning and having a blank thing and yeah. you know in a few hours there it is yes exactly uh, a very
0: different story yeah. of a female performer kate bush is the last piece this was a, a london review of books piece that you wrote about kate it was kind of the return of Kate Bush, wasn't it? Was it just when she was about to do all those shows yeah, just down the road yeah. from where we're sitting now?
2: Horrendously overpriced tickets. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> what,
0: you, you you write beautifully about Kate Bush and again I sort of I, I agree with an enormous amount of what you say. Although I do like probably at least a third of the sensual world very much. and yeah. I and I sort of get your point that she was at her best when she was, in a sense, most unfettered by any idea of what she should do. And very similar it. to Prince in a lot of ways. So she I was think, kind of the female Prince, was Yeah,
1: because there was that moment in the 80s where they were using the new technology and using it in very odd, freaky ways, yes. in unexpected ways, but not self-indulgent, you know. They seemed to know just when to to stop, you know. Mm. And, I mean, musical ways, not,
2: not technological ways. Yeah. I think that's one of the key things.
0: Actually, that's a perfect segue to our audio interview. Smooth. We do love smooth segues. <laughs> no, but because, because Billy Gibbons says, he's asked by interviewer Tony Sherman um, about ZZ Top using, you know, sequences and things. And Billy says, well, I just, I take the Frank Zappa approach, which is you you throw the manual away and then turn the machine on. And, and, and that's what we, we do. And in a way, that the use of electronic instruments by Prince, Kate Bush and others is it's at its best when it's, when it's kind of, when, when the manual has been thrown away and you feel like they're, they're not just settling into kind of preset grooves Mm. and they're just doing really quite innovative things. Especially with
1: someone like ZZ Top where they're supposed to be this dusty, authentic, you know, blues band. And they're they're using all this. uh, I mean, one of my favorites from that era is Rough Boy by then. Yes. which, um, Which, is it, on one hand is awful because it has that 80s drum sound so I mean, many bad boom drums boom in the 80s, boom yeah. Boom yeah. and you immediately know what year even what month even yeah. what week it's recorded from the drum sound yeah you know. But I love that song. I love that, you know, I could listen to it
0: all day. But- well, I could listen to Gimme All Your Lovin' probably two or three times a day. I remember Paul did not, for some reason, I remember being in an enemy edit, editorial <laughs> meeting, those, those notorious editorial meetings. And I remember I, I had just read Paul's singles column and, and he'd made Gimme All Your Lovin' maybe the singles of the week, or one of the two or three singles of the week. I think they got it absolutely right there, that kind of blend of of kind of hard blues and uh, and kind of eighties m- mechanics.
1: The only, they were one of the only rock bands I liked when I was a teenager, along with you know Little Feet, and uh, I really liked that album. That's, uh, what was it. Waiting, waiting for the bus and, bus, and Jesus just left Chicago. And, uh, yeah, I love that. Album. I think that's my favorite. A, yeah, I believe that because
0: I enemies sent me out to interview Easy Top in nineteen eighty four, and. For some reason, it sticks in my mind that when the piece came out, the headline, someone said, and it was, two out of three cats prefer whiskers. And someone said, that was Ian Penman's <laughs> headline. <laughs> Is that possible? You probably wouldn't remember. I don't know. It. I wasn't, it's a sort of witticism. W- w- you would have come have been, up with. Um, because the great joke about ZZ Top just was that the, the, the two of them had very long beards already by that point, but the guy named Frank, Frank Beard, Beard <laughs> just had a moustache. <laughs> uh, we all thought that was hilarious. So, uh, maybe that was your I headline. wasn't
1: really into Cats at that time. That came much later. Okay. So, it, um, well, so maybe it, it wasn't It might not have you. been
0: Probably um, but Danny, but I don't know. It probably was Danny. Shall we but listen so, yeah, I to mean, a we've, bit we've got
2: this. We've got this, as you said, Tony Sherman interview, Billy Gibbons. From, from 1990,
0: 1990,
2: yeah. And... He talks about all sorts of stuff, but he also he talks about meeting muddy waters, and I think it'd be great to just listen to a clip of that.
3: Burlington, Iowa. The blues, there was a little blues show in Burlington, Iowa. We had not met muddy waters. at... Personally, at that time, this was about 74. And Freddie King, Dusty, who had played yeah. with Freddie King, Frank.
1: Oh, he backed up, You would play the regularly?
3: Yeah, they were part of the band. Yeah. You know, they'd sit in and Freddie said, "Yeah, you, you don't know money. He said, Come on in here, boys. And uh, there, there it was, the Fender bass case stretch between two chairs, five guys, Uh, card game going on. Uh Freddie King said, he walks in, first of all, pulls out a roll yeah. just to get some attention. Oh, and he said, uh, before y'all going to get in any of this, uh, you got got to meet my boss. Yeah. This is ZZ Top. Yeah. You know, I yeah. meet, uh, Muddy Waters. He had a uh, <laughs> half royal club. He kind of looked over his shoulder and went, pleased to meet you. <laughs> oh, Muddy said that. That's <laughs> yeah. funny. Like a little back. Right, a smile went on for two seconds, and then he went back to yeah.
0: the game. Doesn't he say somewhere, there's a great quote, it's certainly in the piece, which is that muddy I've really taken it up muddy said to Billy Gibbons, you know you don't have to be the best, just try to be one of the good ones, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's which is lovely I don't know if that it, maybe that's not in the clip, but I mean Billy's just a delight to 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 listen to an interview this wonderful laconic, not even that Texan a voice um. I'm a huge Top fan, even when they got a little bit too mechanical in the '80s. Interestingly, that interview, the album "Recycler" has just come out,
2: and they talk exactly about what we were sort of thinking: technology, rootsy sound, whatever. That he, I mean, he's talking about going back to that more rock sound after a long period of like sequencers and drum machines and all this kind of thing. So he goes into kind of why they've done that, and it's funny because. I think Tony Sherman wanted to ask about all that sequenced stuff in a kind of critical way, and is sort of relieved to hear that
1: they're going to go back to that, which is well, interesting. It wasn't? Didn't they? What was that great single they put out a couple of years ago? Was I got uh, to get paid. Yeah. Yes. A version of a kind of rap that was fantastic.
0: That was the best thing they've done in twenty years. Yeah, I mean, i forgotten
1: it about that. Get was that out. Absolutely
0: and get extraordinary. It was Rick Rubin. I mean, you know, yeah. you yeah. have to playing hand it, it to Rick. Yesterday,
1: thinking just the sound. It was. It, like, it no, is absolutely thrilling. Yeah,
0: and and enough, before you joined Rock's Back page, it's just Mark and Paul know and had a kind of works outing to the Hammer Smith Odeon, as we still call it, of course, so to see's easy top probably four years ago, and I think that album had just come out and they played like gods to get paid, I and mean, it just oh,
3: Five
0: lighters on my dresser, yes son. You know I've got to get paid There's another great track on him called Chartreuse, right? I mean, they're horrendous.
1: I've always heard down the years that no one has anything bad to say about Gibbons. You know, he's like one of the good guys sort of thing. He's uh, definitely
0: one of the good like guys. Like with Michael
1: Nesmith, there's various people you always hear good things about. But they're still having fun, basically. They're still enjoying themselves, you know, which is... Our friend, do you
0: remember Lloyd Bradley? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so Lloyd, Lloyd was in here as a guest just the other day. Funny enough, we were talking about, about George Clinton, and we had Tom Vickers, who was the P-Funk's kind of minister of information. And, like, two days later, Lloyd told, told me that... So, so Tom Vickers had become a very close friend of G- Billy Gibbons, and Gibbons happened to be in town... And they went out to Nando's. <laughs> Billy oh and Tom God. and Lloyd and their wives went out to Nando's, and Billy's sitting. There, everyone's coming up. You're, you're <laughs> the guy from ZZ Top, you know. How's the chicken, you know? And you know, he, he just was uh, such was, a pleasure and so lovely to everybody. The great in a
1: sleeve of Trez, trez- Hombres. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. I brought my copy in. Is
1: that, that was another one. You um, that, that you know, interviewing Annette Peacock and uh, John Faye and Weatherport. Not long after that, I mean, one, of the, one of the gigs I, I reviewed was the Parliament and Funkadelic oh, okay, fun. at Hammond. Classic, with the with this UFO coming down. We and have the it on page. Pages. Yeah, we have four, it on Rocksback Pages. Four or five hours. I don't think that's a particularly great review or anything, because I think I was kind of, you know, it's like just stunned. You know? Right. And two days later, you have to somehow make sense. <laughs> of this, the mothership. You know? How I, funny. I mean, of, of all the people I've met and gigs that uh, you know, if I had a time machine, I would you know that would be near the top. I would love to go back and and see that again. You know? Yeah, it's like,
0: yeah, completely.
1: I think, much to my regret, we're running out of time
0: because you got to edit this thing. Yeah, I've got to edit this
2: thing. <laughs> but and we haven't even got to any of the archive stuff that Mark so kindly selected for us.
0: Do you want to just skim through? I mean, some there's, a,
2: there's some interesting stuff. There's a. Dawn James' piece from Rave 1965, which is interesting, historically speaking, because it's sort of about the stresses of pop life, and it's a sort of broad piece about whether or not it's hard work being a pop star, basically. There's a sort of bloke on the street being... You it know, probably being was ushered. in those
1: days. Yeah, you know. That's I was her point. About Scott Walker, you know, yeah. it's like, they they worked, well, their managers worked their right. off, you know. Right, but the the general public thought it was just a sort of laugh. Oh, they were yeah. just sort of
2: swanning around, like, you know, there's this guy who's being on the street, being ushered past a sort of Rolling Stones, being ushered into a theatre by the police escort, and he, he sort of goes, just starting work, eh? It's five o'clock, I've been at it all day. Lazy lot, these pop stars. And Dawn James makes the point, lazy. The Stones have been working all day too, traveling, being interviewed, making radio tapes for use in America. The man was on his way home, but they were yet to face the real work when they actually earned their money. Mm. And really, oddly, interestingly, at the end of the piece it lists a bunch of artists who had breakdowns nervous or otherwise in this kind of slightly strange factual way it Sort of goes pj Proby, march 1965 told by his doctors to take it easy <laughs> dusty springfield september 1964 collapsed in a dressing room while appearing in u.s show this was mm-hmm. her second breakdown Is scott in there because he, yeah, that's what happened I I yeah yeah yeah, like, yeah
1: he did and vodka it... and pills you know every day it so
2: it's like... a very odd sort of i mean quite an early piece along that sort of tack, which, which makes it interesting story. So that's mm. nice. And a, a really great piece with, about Arif Mardin, where he talks about Aretha Franklin, that's Robert Williams, oh, yeah. from Melody Maker 1969. And it's great, because Arif Mardin waxes lyrical about Aretha's piano playing and how it just forms the guide for now, how could arrangements. Yeah. And it's you know, so it's, that's that's a nice. piece. I could read that yeah. stuff forever. You know, the stuff about the
1: muscle shelves and how it was recorded. And well, you mentioned yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, in my really yeah, intro, intro about,
0: yeah. Uh, Dan Penn and Chips' moment. Guys, are close to my heart. <laughs> yeah. And a,
2: another Richard Williams piece about James Booker, who's someone I absolutely adore. Yeah. James Booker is just one of the most fabulous piano players across idioms to to have sat down at the instrument. I think it's worth reading out yeah. this
0: paragraph because it's beautiful.
2: It's great. It's a review from 100 Club, The Times, 76. His piano style is, by turns, incorrigibly flashy and starkly profound in the manner of every New Orleans pianist since Jelly Roll Morton. And it was no surprise to hear him prefacing classics like Something You Got and Rockin' Pneumonia with outrageously inappropriate extracts from Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it just yeah. is
2: great. Those Roll
0: great. over Beethoven and tell Tchaikovsky yeah. the news, right? But uh, yeah, Booker was... So nice that's a great great piece yeah
2: it was wonderful
0: there's two pieces about bands that i think are are, are interesting an early piece about the modern lovers not a lot was written about the modern lovers and and, and jonathan richmond this is bob spitz in crawdaddy january 77 and then an interview with ivy rorschach or how you pronounce it of the cramps from melody maker which is great madness stone roses we've got it all stephen wells on war black grape on drugs of course <laughs> a nice dorian linsky profile of, of van dyke parks i mean, how could that not be entertaining it always is which, which are your and favorites just just,
2: just to just to bring it back i know we've talked about prince already at length but this is a, a great michelle kirsch seeing prince live and the piece starts Twice in my life I've shouted, it's better than sex, and twice I've been wrong. First time I was chasing hot rocks exploding candy with Pepsi Cola on some street corner in Puerto Rico, and this Puerto Rican guy goes, no it isn't. Second time I was actually having sex but sort of forgot about it in all the excitement, and this Puerto Rican guy goes, no it isn't. I've just rung the Puerto Rican consulate and told them Prince is better than sex, and they said, we know, we know. So it's true. Prince is better than sex, and this is on the highest authority. Oh, that's it's very just good. A, just a very funly written. Piece. And
0: that's the Camden Palace, isn't it? Uh, yeah. What year? Sorry, is it? 1988. 1988. Well, so so love sexy. Yeah. So love sexy.
2: That's it, really. From from great from the archive sections. In the interest of keeping this to a listenable hour and <laughs> hour and well we've had moment. too much
0: fun haven't we could we could certainly could on talk forever? for another yeah, hour and, it, and it's sad that we can't but we do have to bring it to a close those are among the highlights of New things going to the library this this week for subscribers. There's tons of great stuff there, and the three free Ian Penman pieces that you really must read, and then you must go and buy his book. Yes, um, it gets enough. me home. This curving track. It that that title I think comes from a W. H. Auden yes. poem, yeah. doesn't yeah. it? And you write about why you Explain. chose to call it yeah. that. Yeah. But it, it really is some of the best writing that I've ever read on popular music and related attendant issues. It's published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. Ian, you're doing various, like, events, Yes, I am. You? Yes, Quote, yes, unquote. I'm leaving the house. To <laughs> yeah. well, we've ever... <laughs> dragged you out the house today. I know that was quite I thought traumatic. if I ever did a
1: memoir about freelance life, it would be called Getting Out of the House. <laughs> <That's Yes>. like...
0: <laughs> so <laughs> but just but to that's... briefly, what do you, tell us what you do. You're doing something at the London Review Bookshop, aren't
1: you? And you're doing... Perhaps... A, that's not until September, but I think I'm doing a thing... The word thing podcast. Can, yeah. No, it's a live thing. It's just... Oh. They record it live. Yeah. But it's just nonetheless a podcast called The Word in Your Ear. That's it, yeah. That'll I be great. I think that's next. It's the 20th or the 21st or 2nd. I'm not very good at... <laughs> what was the other one? Uh, I've got a... Uh, Oh, yeah, and I'm doing a thing at Rough Trade to send yeah. you the dates. So yeah, yeah. It'll we'll we'll, 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 yeah, we'll yeah, we'll be on the Twitter as well. Uh, and, yeah, Paul Boy conscious too.
2: Enough, do go out and buy this book. It is great. Yeah, right. it, it
0: is great. It does beg the question, are, are, at the podcast, are they going to raise this fantastic quote where apparently at the, at the inaugural editorial meeting of Q, they basically say, what we're about is everything that isn't Ian Penman and Paul yes. Morley. Yes. And yes. you apparently went great my work is done <laughs> <laughs> I, I i do hope somebody raises that um it will be it's fun i did that podcast and they're 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 delightful yeah. hosts you'll have fun and and it'll be an, it'll be a great crowd
1: the past is a different country aren't yes it? it is and the
0: future's even more different so and thanks so much for coming in it's been a great pleasure thank you much more fun then.
1: too much fun
0: too much fun we will be back next week funny enough with. Uh, Richard Williams is due to come in and we can ask him in person about James Booker Can't and Arif Mardin and many wait. other things No, that would be a great honour um, so we're going to say goodbye but we're going to leave you with a second clip from the Billy Gibbons audio interview that which is Jasper,
2: which is where he talks about Stevie Ray Vaughan who had
0: just died
2: just died at the time
0: so yeah, we we'll fellow Texan that. blues god thanks for joining us
2: thanks bye bye bye
3: I wanted to, unfortunately, ask you about Stevie Ray and, and just sort of see how you feel about that because it really shocked everyone on on Monday. Did you ever play with him? Of course, um, Frank and Dusty of course grew up with him uh, in Dallas. In, in uh, Dallas, and just this morning we we're talking about the Dallas. time when they went to see Jimmy and and Stevie came in at the age of ten and uh had learned his first song and wanted to show it off to jimmy and they were there to well, wait a minute where did he come from? and it took uh, years and years of perseverance and uh, commitment to development for him to emerge as the artist that he did and uh it has been taken away from all of his fans at such an early age when he had so much seemingly ahead was, was a great show and I think I stand along the many who mourn the loss of another great artist
2: that was Billy Gibbons in conversation with Tony Sherman in 1990 including this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast Many thanks to special guest Ian Penman, whose new book *It Gets Me Home*—this curving track—is published by Fitzcarraldo Editions and available now from all good bookshops. The host was Barney Hoskins, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.